0: Well, it's that time of the month when we listen to a sermon. Dr. Smith and I are here to introduce you today to a person who's really no stranger to Beeson Divinity School, Dr. R. Kent Hughes. Dr. Kent Hughes is the Senior Pastor Emeritus of College Church in Wheaton, Illinois. He's visited Beeson on various occasions. He's given our preaching lectures. He's taught courses here. He's preached in chapel. A wonderful man of God, a great expositor of God's Word. Tell us what we're going to hear from Dr. Kent Hughes today.
1: You're going to hear one of the great biblical preachers. He is a biblical theologian who can preach and a preacher who can provide biblical theology. Uh, Here is an individual who takes a familiar text. And yet show some insights that we normally don't think about. And here's an individual who puts you in the story, Dean George, so it becomes your story. Kind of mm. like James A. Sanders. Biblical characters do not primarily serve us as models for morality, but rather as mirrors for identity. We start seeing ourselves. God's story is yours. That's exactly it. And uh, one of the things that I think that we fail to um, experience when we see familiar texts is that uh, we we encounter obstacles because of what we think we already know about the Bible. He shows us a story that is so familiar that it becomes strange so that in the end uh, it becomes familiar. Uh, So I I think that here's a sermon that uh, Ken Hughes wants to make sure that even though there's imagination, he doesn't want to say anything more than what the text says. He'll take us back He'll revisit Ur of the Chaldees and show us that Abraham was familiar with the reality of human sacrifice. But when it came to his own life, it was a stunning, astounding command. Mm -hmm. Take your son, your only son, the son you love, Isaac, and offer him up as a sacrifice on one of the mountains I tell you of
0: one of the great classic texts of all of Scripture, really, and done so well by Dr. Kent Hughes. I want to mention that in addition to his preaching ministry, he is also the editor of the Fifty volume Preaching the Word series. Several of our Beeson faculty have contributed volumes to this series. And if any of our pastors are listening, uh, you don't you don't know the Preaching the Word series, I encourage you to subscribe to it, buy those volumes. They're wonderful, they're helpful, they're inspiring just to read. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Dr. Hugh, this yeah. is a part of his ministry yeah. of extending the importance of expositional preaching in today's church. Let's listen to this sermon, Genesis twenty two. By our friend Dr. R. Kent Hughes.
2: Our scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Genesis chapter 22 verses one to 19. Some time later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, "Abraham, here I am," he replied. Then God said, "Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah." Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, And make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies. And through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants and they set off together for Beersheba. And Abraham stayed in Beersheba. This is
3: God's word. Please please. As... Um but Pastor Nielsen read the scripture this morning, and I realized it was, the, uh, I think, the third time or third service that he's participated in today, and I'm sure he's thinking, they're trying to get all they can get out of me before I leave. Appreciated the reading of God's Word. We're back in our regular study of Genesis this morning, and you want to keep your uh, eyes on this magnificent passage that's so full of necessary, essential truths. Abraham's life of faith was launched when he left Ur in obedience to God's promise that he would make Abraham into a great nation, that he would bless him, and that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through him. He left Ur on that basis. And over the years, that great promise was repeated and reiterated with remarkable drama and even greater specificity. Now, on the onset, as Abraham, fresh from Ur, traveled through central Canaan, that is, through the promised land, the Lord appeared to him promising him the land. And he built an altar, worshipped God. Next, after Lot appeared, uh, separated from Abraham, taking the best part of the land, God took Abraham to a hilltop and he said, look north and south and east and west I'm giving it all to you. And so the promise was reiterated. And he said it would be his forever. And his children would number like the dust of the earth. Then sometime later, after Abraham had rescued Lot from the four kings of of the north, and he was uh, recuperating from that, and he was thinking about the fact that he did not yet have an heir, that in fact he and his wife were barren, God took him outside under the stars and he said, "Look up at the stars, if you can count them." And then God said, "So shall your offspring be. And awed and humbled under the stars, Abram was speechless, silent. But the scripture speaks for him. Abraham believed the Lord, and he credited to him as righteousness. There had been a silent amen inside of him, as he really did believe, barren as he and Sarah were, that he would have an heir, a son. The next day, Abraham obeyed God's directives as God told him to arrange the parts of slain animals for a covenantal sacrifice. And when the sun had set, God appeared as a flaming furnace radiating orange in the darkness, And then that glowing furnace of God's presence moved, gliding down the macabre path lined with glistening animal parts. Abraham saw that God alone had passed down that path, that he hadn't been asked to. That it was then a unilateral, unconditional covenant in which God announced that if He did not fulfill His word in giving Him the land, He would be sundered Himself. So in two consecutive days under the stars, He understood He was going to have an heir on the land with the presence of God that He was going to have the land. Years pass. Abraham was 99 years old and God was preparing him for the covenant of circumcision. And God changed on that day Abram's name to Abraham, father of a multitude. Because kings were going to issue from him. The whole world was going to be blessed through him. And he changed Sarah's name, Sarai's name to Sarah, reaffirming that she is a princess as king's royalty will come for her in the book of Genesis 49.10, the lion of the tribe of Judah. And then the unborn, yet to be conceived, son was given a name, Isaac, laughter, all in that day. Well, Sarah would laugh about this, but the Laughter was coming. And so Abraham circumcised all of his household, a sign of belief and trust in the covenantal promise of God. You see, during those long years, uh, the great promise of a people and a land and a blessing were being reiterated. As it was going on, Abraham's faith is uneven. Face mountaintops... As you read it, are always lodged against the edge of dark valleys such as those identical sins of lying to Pharaoh and then Abimelech about his wife. Or the great lapse of faith in the affair with Hagar, not trusting God, which then brought on fifteen years of domestic misery. Great valleys. But with the birth of Isaac, that's the last chapter, verse 21, that we looked at last week, and the necessary departure of Ishmael and the treaty of Beersheba, Abraham was, through Isaac, assured of a people and assured of a land as he put a well down in Beersheba, in the promised land. And so his face soared. When you come to the close of that account in chapter 21, he calls the Lord Elohim. The eternal God. Now that designation of the Lord as eternal God or enduring God says it all. Because as he spent some time in the land, it was a sense of security and a sense that it was happening and it was going to be completed. And so this is the name that he gave to God, celebrating that. The the, the landmark statements of God's promise... First, when he set out from Ur. Then the promise that he heard when he was in the land. Then the promise that was reiterated with the departure of Lot. And fourthly, when he heard the renamings, Father, Multitude, Isaac, Princess, Laughter. And finally, when he held baby Laughter in his arms and he called God, Elohim, Eternal God, These restatements of the promise initiated Abraham's long, secure stay in the land of the Philistines, the land of the promise, until the test, which is where we take up the story this morning. Now, the announcement in the opening line of the story that God was testing Abraham serves to cushion the reader from the shock of what follows Because it is traumatic. And imagine how painful this story would be to read for the first time with no knowledge of its outcome without that warning. It's a test. Excruciating story. Also, the knowledge that this is a test alerts us the truth that growth in faith involves testing. That God tests our faith and then it's stretched. Whereby then it grows. And here Abraham's faith is being stretched to the utter limit. And because he held firm, his faith became the grand example in world history. There is no other greater example. This morning you're hearing about the greatest example of faith in all the history of the world. In this man. With his mountaintops and his dark valleys. You're going to see it. You also note that this test came after substantial spiritual growth and blessing in verse in chapter 21 with the birth of Isaac and the well in Beersheba and calling God El-Alam. And that his recent successes and growth became the ground for yet greater testing and growth, which is something that we need to take to heart. Because that's the way God does. And He'll always do it. That is the process, as we'll see. Now, we know it was a test. But Abraham doesn't have a clue. And so you have to, to understand that he heard those excruciating words and experienced that excruciating pain because they began with terms of family endearment. Take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. You see, he was Abraham's only son, in the sense of what we're talking about here, because of the departure of Ishmael. And he was evidently about the same age as Ishmael was when Ishmael departed, because he's called a boy or a lad, same word that's used for Ishmael. So he's a teenager. 14, 15, 16 years old. And over that decade and more, he had become Abraham's laughter, his joy, his reason to smile. And indeed, he did. And everything in the promise was focused on Isaac. This laughter, this love of his life, this lovely boy. And he loved him with the kind of love you parents know about, which is an aching, parental love that actually loves so much that it hurts. Now those enduring terms, your son, your only son, Isaac, who you love, issues in unmitigated horror sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Three bare imperatives. Take, go, sacrifice him. And to an ancient mind, like Abraham's recently come out of Mesopotamia, a burnt offering suggested this. First, cutting the offering's throat. Bleeding it out. Dividing the offering into sections, dismembering it, placing it upon the altar and burning the offering until there are only ashes left. A holocaust offering, a burnt offering. And that is what Abram heard and that is what he saw. And more, understand it wasn't beyond the range of his experience or his credulity. He'd come from Ur. They did human sacrifice in Ur. He was in Canaan. They did human sacrifice in Canaan and up and down the coast. So human sacrifice was familiar to his conceptual worldview. However dumbfounding and repulsive it may have been to him. And remember, he didn't have the yet-to-be-written Torah, which would indicate God's character, inform his worldview inform his doctrine of God. That Abraham quite simply didn't doubt it for a moment. We wouldn't believe it today because we have the Scriptures. We have the Bible. We have the character of God. But he did not have those things as he had come down from Mesopotamia and God was asking him to act against his common sense, against every genuine... Filial feeling that he had against his lifelong hope. It's really interesting. You know the text doesn't tell you anywhere how he feels? I mean that's the art of this. This is minimalist. That's the art of this because you can fill in the lines, can't you parents? How it was. Abraham was told to do it with his own two hands. Unbelievable. The light's gone out. Laughter is only a memory. And if we're astounded by the command to Abraham, we're even more astounded by his immediate obedience. Verse 3, early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering. He set out for the place God had told him about. He's up at the crack of dawn, no hesitation whatsoever. There is a little bit of a hint that that the trauma of all of this had sort of dulled his mind. As the eminent uh, Old Testament scholar Gordon Wyndham notes, he says, the order of the action... First, saddling his donkey and then cutting wood is illogical. Though then likely oriented, Abraham nevertheless obeyed immediately. Now, the wonders of this increase in this initial obedience, because after three days' journey, he looks up and he sees the place indicated by God in the distance, and he says to his, his two servants, verse 5, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and we will come back to you. Now, worship is a little vague, because he's going to do a Holocaust offering. A burnt offering. They may have wondered about where he was going to get the offering if he used the word, but he didn't use the word. But there's also something else. Very intentional. He says, we will come back to you. Now, he believed it. He was totally sincere and convinced that after offering Isaac, that the two of them would return Now, it's not left up to me to decide this interpretation because it's already decided in the New Testament. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews 11, verse 17. 11.17, page 1192. Chapter 11, verse 17, the Holy Spirit speaking. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, "It is through Isaac that your offering will be reckoned." Offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. And then he adds a little aside. He says, "And, figuratively speaking." he did receive Isaac back from death. You see, he so believed God's promise that Isaac's children would carry on the bloodline. God had given that promise that he reasoned that God was going to have to raise him from the dead. And so Abraham envisioned the doctrine of the resurrection when there had been nothing in history to suggest it. There's a In John 8.56, it says, Abraham rejoiced uh, to see my day, Jesus speaking. Saw my day and rejoiced in it. And I wonder if that John 8.56 is perhaps a little bit of what he's talking about here. Whatever you have is bold, original, informing faith. Now, the ascent up the mount to the place of sacrifice was evidently too steep for the donkey. So in verse 6 we read, Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. Now what an image, as he carries the wood up the mount. I think it's very significant that the Genesis Rabbah, that is a midrash, a pre-Christian midrash on Genesis, a Jewish midrash commentary says this, that Isaac, with the wood on his back, was like a condemned man carrying the cross. And indeed it was. It was truly prophetic of Jesus, whose John's Gospel describes as carrying His own cross. He went out to the place of the skull. John 19.17. Now that ascent up that mount with the Son carrying the wood, the Father, the implements of sacrifice evidently went on in silence. Because the account indicates, as was read this morning, as the two of them went up together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the water here, Isaac said. But where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Now, Isaac's breaking that silence emphasizes father's mute excruciating grief. And the literal Hebrew parallels are my father, my son, emphasizing tender affection. And Isaac's question, where is the lamb, indicates not only naivety, but his absolute trust in his father. He has no hint this could happen. How could he conceive it? How could he think it? He had no idea. It couldn't be. He couldn't think of that. Well, Isaac's trust also foreshadows the greater partnership of the cross expressed in Isaiah 53 and these familiar phrases from Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 10. He was oppressed and afflicted. He did not open His mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. As a sheep before her shearers is silent, so He did not open His mouth. And yet it was the Lord's will to crush Him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes His life a guilt offering, He will see His offspring and prolong His days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in His hand. And here in our story, the descriptive, the two of them went up together, twice repeated in uh, verses 6 and 8, emphasized the victim and the offer willfully ascending the hill together. Again, a shadow of the cross. Well, there's an immortal answer to Isaac. And Abraham answers, and note it well in verse 8, because it is a turning point in this narrative. God Himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering. God Himself will provide, states His absolute trust in God. God will provide. I'm trusting God. God will provide. But when he says it, it also allows for God to be God. He cannot tell Isaac all that's going to happen because he doesn't know himself what's going to happen. His uh, God will provide is at the same time a declaration of trust. It is an expression of his deepest hope. It is a prophecy of the future, and He does it all in the spirit of submissive prayer. And what you're going to see is that this God will provide is going to bring a mighty echo which informs the doctrine of God and puts the whole text in full understanding of who God is and how God works. Now, this is about Abraham, but more than that, it's about God. As John Calvin wisely observed, he said, this example is for our imitation. In such difficulties, the only remedy is to leave the event to God in order that He may open a way for us when there is none. That the great glory to God is in situations like this to say, God will provide. I don't know how, but God will provide. Now, we'll return to this. One thing is very clear, is that Abraham could not have offered Isaac unless Isaac cooperated. That's obvious. Who's carrying the wood? Who's the old man? I mean, really an old man. Who's quickest? Who's fastest? Who's strongest? You see, apparently Isaac had decided to obey his father, whatever the cost, in the very way that Abraham had decided to obey God the Father, whatever the cost. Now, this is miraculous, and it it is stupendous, and it pushes the edges of our own credulity. You have to say what happened. The text doesn't say what happened. I'll surmise, I think it's probably a pretty good thing, is that as they walked along and talked, he rehearsed all of those five reiterations of the promises. He rehearsed what amounts to his miraculous conception and birth. And he rehearsed the fact that through Isaac, the whole world was going to be blessed. Therefore, Isaac had to continue on. And Isaac believed him. And they were both heroes in their souls. So in quick order, Abraham built an altar. He arranged the wood he bound his beloved son lest in the last moments in fear he would flee. He hoisted him up on the altar and then he reached for the blade. Now I can't imagine being able to hold on to the blade. Fingers convulsing, loathing the whole thing as he tightens for the sacrificial cut. But true faith produces amazing work. Real faith is a faith that works. Just the apostle James said in referencing his sacrifice. This is James, the second chapter, verses 21 through 24. James says about this. He comments on this. He says, Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did and the scripture was fulfilled that says abraham believed god and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called god's friend you see he says that a person who is justified by what he do, is justified by what he does and not by faith alone that true faith faith that is real works a real faith is a faith that works He'd been believing on all those revelations. He'd gone up and down, but now his faith is peaking in the greatest work possible. And Abraham's will was in motion. In a split second, the sacrifice would be done and his son's dear blood would be pouring out on the ground. But the angel of the Lord called him in heaven Abraham! Abraham! Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, and because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son, never was a voice more welcome." And Abraham's heart had been so throbbing, soared. And his sons that had been racing in fear, likewise, soared. And the hearing and the seeing of a substitute evidently took place at the same instance because the account says in verse 13, Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. Never was there a more joyous or eager eager holocaust offering given. As the flames consumed the ram, Abraham and Isaac were offering their hearts to God. You see, the sacrifice declared what bird offerings declared. All we have and all we are is yours, God, Consume our lives to your glory, joyous father and son. It's a sacrifice of that lamb. In ecstasy, verse 14, Abraham called the place, the Lord will provide. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, and to this day it is said, on the mountaintop of the Lord it will be provided. His initially ambiguous God will provide has now been fulfilled more perfectly and completely than he could ever have dreamed. Abraham's declaration of faith, God will provide. The turning point in the narrative as he and Isaac ascended toward the sacrifice has now become the story's end, God will provide. And so we see that the Lord who tests is a Lord who provides. That's what you want to see about God. The God who tests is the God who provides. That our doctrine of God is that God is a God who provides. And so as we go through the tests of growing a greater faith, God tests us, stretches us, we believe He provides. God tests, He stretches us, we believe He provides. He always has provided He has provided for every believer. He always has. And so when we're called to give our Isaacs those things that are most precious to us, understand that when we do it, Jehovah Jireh, God provides. So we learn about God and we learn about Abraham. Now this is extraordinary. This is, this is a mind Boggling act of faith. I couldn't do it. You couldn't do it. We wouldn't be called to do it because we know what the scriptures say. But he did it. And it is so amazing that God did something he'd never done before. He swore an oath in his own name. Verses 15 through 18. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, that because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of their enemies and through your offspring, all the nations on earth will be blessed because you've obeyed me. Now with this oath, Abraham had every possible assurance from God. He had the initial promise in Ur. He had the promise made to him when he first visited Canaan. He had the promise made to him when he when a, uh, when Lot took advantage of him. He had the promise that he believed under the stars. He had the promise of a unilateral covenant. He had the promise of the names Abraham, Sarah, and Isaac, the new names. He had the promise in the person of Isaac, and now God swore it by himself. Again the New Testament provides indispensable commentary turn to Hebrews the 6th chapter Hebrews 6 verse 13 page 1370 I think Hebrews 6:13 This is essential 613, when God made this promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. Now look down at verse 18. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible to lie, namely, His word of promise and His oath. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. The great encouragement is God always keeps His word. He keeps every word. Every word of God is kept. Every word. Every promise. Every promise you can think of. Every promise that is yes in Christ. He keeps. God has sworn it. He keeps it. He's made a unilateral covenant. He'll be flayed before His Word is not carried out. And from here on, it is only necessary to look back to the oath to say all that needs to be said about the promises of God, and that is what the Old Testament does on repeated times. And when you look at this, it is all so simple. We grow in faith as we believe the bare Word of God. The process is this. God comes to us with His Word, His promise, His challenge, and we're challenged to believe. And when we believe it, He tests us by stretching our faith so it can grow to greater dimensions than ever before. There are always valleys next to the hilltops. We are the same human compost of Abraham. There are ups and downs, but He grows us incrementally so that we can give our Isaacs to God, to the glory of God. And may it be so. Let us pray. Father, these are strange and terrifying things. We resist these kinds of challenges, but your word is true. You've sworn it. You will provide. You test and you provide. You test and you provide. You test and you provide. Because your name is Jehovah Jireh. The Lord provides and we believe it and we rest in it to your glory. Amen. You've
0: been listening to the Beeson Podcast with host Timothy George. You can subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at our website, beesondivinity.com.